Extras for Podcast is brought to you by the fine folks at Cage Club. So for all of your comics, movies, music, games, and more, check out cageclub.me. That's cageclub.me. Hey everybody, welcome back to all new, all different, Uncanny X's for Podcasts, where we examine the Uncanny X-Men comic book franchise as it begins its multi-title 80s expansion. I'm your host Jonah. I'm Maddie. And I'm Nico. And I was playing with action figures, and I hope to survive. This is X's for Podcast. Welcome back, everybody. And we're here to discuss the whole reason we're here in the first place, Uncanny X-Men. And we're here kind of talking about 181 to 184. It's sort of hard because this era, this Claremont, John Romita Jr., Dan Green era is just so fucking fantastic. And there's so much to it. You never know how far you're going to get through a discussion. As it is, I feel like there's so much we didn't say about the last round of issues, the New Mutants 15th. 17 by Chris Claremont and Sal Buscema. You know, for my money, it's crazy how much that storyline had Doug in it, had Kitty in it, Ileana, that three-parter, plus all the Hellions. And now when I take a look at the Dawn of X and I take a look at things like there's a Hellions title starring Empath. There is a there's an unlimited amount of Ileana anywhere you want to look. And Doug is the center of everything. Kitty's kind of dead, sure. But Emma Frost is like, this arc, man. This fucking arc. So here's the thing about that New Mutants arc. I feel like it had to be the three issues it had to be so that the X-Men had time to kind of gear the fuck up for whatever this was. Now, to remind everybody, as the book so deftly does over and over again in the course of these issues, the X-Men had been whisked away to secret wars, plucked right the fuck out of New York, taken to an alternate planet, and then show back up a week later, but it's a year in publishing time. Now, I kind of feel like we've talked about the secret wars to death. Colossus is sad boy. Colossus Colossus's girlfriend gets with Human Torch. Turns out Colossus's girlfriend was never Colossus's girlfriend. Magneto tries to bang Wasp. Then the Wasp tries to bang the Lizard. Out of all the unlikely pairings, that's the one I ship the most. Uh, I'm still hoping for a Janet Lizard revival of their love and their flame. Wait, do Lizards eat Wasps? I feel like Lizards eat flying insects, so it's definitely not out of range. But they Wasps are uh, spicy boys. Spicy, spicy boys. Spicy boys. Well, I know a couple of white Anglo-Saxon Protestants. You guys heard it here first. Janet is a spicy boy. And white Anglo-Saxon and Protestant. She absolutely is. But to talk a little bit more about a different white Anglo-Saxon Protestant woman, Emma Frost plays such a pivotal role in X history, whether it's Dark Phoenix Saga, the introduction of the Hellions. Emma Frost has taught like everyone, and sometimes it's she teaches them by virtue of mind control. Hey, shit happens. But one thing I know we kind of did last time was we sort of maybe commented on how few of the Hellions had much personality, with the exception of, like, Empath, and Thunderbird slash Warpath. And I do feel like those are the two Hellions that make the biggest splash nowadays. Of course, it's weird that we're talking about an era of X-Men where Kitty Pride is dead and Empath is an X-Man. Well, to be fair, they're the only two Hellions who kind of survive any form of comic 
livelihood, not even talking about actual life or death, we just really never see the other Hellions. They're kind of just lost characters who, I guess, they're just more people who are better and interesting and nobody really wants to use them. What did we decide last week? It was Empath and Warpath that stuck around both of the paths? Yeah, the two paths were on the path to sticking around. I mean, in her defense, Cat's Eye has been taking time to recover since losing out on the role to Taylor Swift for Cats. So she needed a minute and Jetpack, Jetstream, Jet Airways. I don't know what to do with that. His mutant ability is he has a jetpack. Brought me to a uh, chorus line. And now I'm just imagining Rain in her Scottish accent. Gotta hope I get it <laughs> with, with all the AHIs. Roulette was replaced by Domino as a, someone who is much more interesting than her. With the exact same power set. You know, that's actually something that I don't feel like gets discussed enough in the X-Men. Dazzler isn't the first Dazzler. She's the second Dazzler because there was a Dazzler before her. Jubilee is the second Dazzler. The second da- Jubilee is the second Dazzler. Jubilee is the second Jubilee. There was a Jubilee before Jubilee. These names, who are they for? They're just sort of like paste them on a character and it works. And nobody even brought up Tarot, which she did not see coming. I was about to bring up Tarot because I would love to see Tarot stick around. And I don't particularly want to see Tarot be utilized any better. I would love to see a present day Tarot who's still just like, this is the knave of wands. How about a pop punk musical about a psychic called Letters to Miss Cleo starring Tarot? Not as Miss Cleo. No. no. But what about a faithful retelling of Hox Pox, but it's done as a secret garden? The spools! The spools! In, in Charlie's eyes. Ooh. Ooh. Wait, there is an X-Man named Spore. Well, no, there's a MILF named oh Spore. God. Oh, and I want it to be sung by Apocalypse and Magneto. Oh, in Charlie's eyes. Oh! <laughs> D-E-A-R-M-O-I-R-A. Oh, okay. <laughs> at first I was like, at first I was like, I don't know what he's spelling. I think the thing that I love the most about the Hoxpox Docs era relying so much on this particular era of storytelling is for so many years, everything was flashes back to the Dark Phoenix saga. And not that I think we've necessarily gotten away from that iteration of the X-Men, but it does feel like the creators are taking a big step forward to some new characters. Now, I do feel like a lot of the new mutants kind of got a short end of the stick in terms of characterization throughout that arc. So much of it was focused on Kitty and sort of on Doug, but not really. Danny and Ileana were the only two characters that really stole the show in that new Mutants arc, but I feel like every fucking X-Man got time in this reading in a way that, even like Lockheed, Lockheed got personality in this. Lockheed drove the the dragon away in this, and, and there's no explanation of where even she goes. A lot of mention, though, that she's she, because God forbid we see a spectrum of dragon relationship. Well, just like the dragon in Shrek. No, there's really nothing there. I, <laughs> I just really, really find it funny that Donkey fucked a dragon. They, they have, they have little donklet children, <laughs> like little, little. I have no memory. I thought Donkey was with Puss in Boots. No, Did I? Oh, I wish. I, I don't think I really no. paid attention. What version of Shrek did you watch, and where can I find it? Donkey got on the dragon at the end of the first film, and then they like had kids in the second film, and then Shrek had little Shreklets. Yeah. Yeah. In the first movie, she gave There's him like the suck. Five. There's like five. I've seen the first one in theaters, and I saw the second one in theaters, and I don't think I've ever seen a Shrek again. 
Anyway, back to what we're supposed to be talking about. To respond to what Maddie is saying, my guess would be she wasn't supposed to be there and the Beyonder was like, oh crap, and kind of snapped her back to where she's supposed to be. That's my only guess as to exactly what could happen. And it's just a weird deus ex Beyonder ma. Well, and I think the thing that ties into that is when this was storied and written, you know, even the best laid plans, when you say, I have a 12 month story planned out in my head and you start to work on it, it's so hard to manage all of those elements at once to kind of jump lanes for a moment the show 24 which not necessarily the best remembered now was at the time kind of cutting edge for its real-time delivery of the narrative but when the creators went in and the showrunners were working on that show they had a 24-hour plan outlined they knew everything that was going to happen every hour for a 24 episode season and they ran out of it by episode 7 they went through the first 23 hours in seven episodes because they had so of misunderstood how long everything was gonna be at about 44 minutes a pop yeah they really didn't understand how pacing worked yet so in so many ways claremont is writing this 181 with secret wars 1 through 12 not happening i read secret wars did the fucking dragon matter not not at all truth be told i really don't even remember a dragon so like this dragon serves no fucking purpose and here we have this weird little story about kind of Lockheed saving the day and the thing that I find really interesting about that is Kitty Pride was part of the New Mutant story while Lockheed remained a member of the X-Men story and Lockheed saved the day in a romance plot now there was nothing super intense about this Lockheed's little firepower is even explained to be kind of unimpressive and it's very little but it gets the job done like immigrants yes Unless you are specifically a brood, which Lockheed just feeds on brood and for some reason his fire is like quadruple effective on them. Well, I mean, that's because they've equipped anti-brood armor to him and that gives him plus 18 to his special. The only other thing that I feel like was noteworthy about this issue was the collaboration between the X-Men and Sunfire. I thought that that was a nice way to represent a Japanese hero in the in the pages of Uncanny. But if I could, we're talking about how ridiculous it is. Lockheed has a romance plot, a, a toxic romance plot with a dragon who has no place in the plot. And if I can, they're trying to project, project like, this woman is crazy. This dragon has crazy ex-dragon girlfriend syndrome. And this is, like, I'm kind of kidding, but I'm kind of not kidding. Like, I do feel like the dragon is kind of like, why won't you love me? In a way that men didn't need to be making all women do, even scaly ones. Wow, that's that's really sad and really telling of the time that even lady dragons have to be that that archetype. But so this is this is we're agreed though. This is by all accounts a filler issue. Aside from what we've mentioned so far, we see where Cyclops ends up, which is right back into Edie Madeline Pryor. Fantastic. We get three pages. It leads us to nothing, and then suddenly the last page of the issue introduces us to the mutant affairs control act by senator robert kelly let me tell you you've just touched on every hallmark i have been dying to touch on with this issue 181 to me represents a rebirth of giant size x-men number one there is this sense of let's re-encapsulate everything we've been discussing for instance maddie this was your first issue of uncanny proper but you didn't say to me i have no idea what's going on with storm or rogue or wolverine instead it all felt very fluid it all felt very connected and i think it's because claremont chose to make this issue 
an amazing jump on point. We sort of got this sequential story where everybody got to use their powers, we got a sense of their dynamic, and we were even reminded things about their backstory as needed. We're reminded Storm is going through a transformation. We're reminded Logan has a past in Japan. Of course, Colossus gets to be super sad boy all the time because that's what Colossus does. Rogue's history becomes so central here. There is so much he is doing to reboot us in with this issue that filler or recap, it's hard to say. Filler, and I barely knew her. Anyway, I think you can really tell how this was meant to just be a small catch-up for the fans who, for some reason, enjoyed the X-Men within Secret Wars and were like, oh, I have been reading X-Men. Maybe I will now. And it's a point where you can just jump on. I really think this issue is character light because it's trying to give a semblance of a plot, but also, again, spoon-feed who these characters are real fast so you can catch up. And I don't know. I understand why it needed to be done, but as someone who's reading X-Men continuously, it feels really weird, considering how the previous stories and issues have been so strong story-wise to then go back to this. It seems like a couple steps back. No disagreement there. I did feel like everybody was moving forward, Kitty was growing up and she was making important decisions. You know, this completely recontextualizes the Kitty Morlock thing. And, you know, I know Wolverine even brings that up later on. But Kitty's sense of moral duty is becoming such a thing in the X-Men that when she's not here, it's hard not to notice that there's this gaping hole in the plot. I wonder if Kitty had had more of a role in this issue, if it would have felt more X-Men-Z. But for my sake, the thing I loved the most about 181 was the reintroduction of this group's dynamic. We got a sense of the fact that Storm is in charge, occasionally deferring to Charles, that Logan is the muscle with some brain. Colossus is ineffective, as ineffective can be. It just felt to me like, hey guys, this is the X-Men after this tumultuous period where a bunch of them were missing at a time. In fact, it even feels like, to jump back into what you're saying, Jonah, it is like taking a big step back. So something you've missed out on, Maddie, is that Scott leaves the book in 138, comes back kind of sort of in 150, sort of leaves the book again, kind of stays around to get married, is supposed to be gone again on his honeymoon, and kind of isn't. But he has been seen in his pretty much shorty short shorts and his Daisy Dukes. Yeah, all of the men this run of books, whether it's Forge or Cyclops, everybody has them balls hanging. I mean, I mean, the, the cover of 181 sees Colossus get a deep V. It's basically a slingshot bikini. It really is. Like, it's the same thing that Psylocke wears in the Marvel Swimsuit Edition. It just makes me think of Baby's First Threesome. It is Baby's First Threesome all over again. But speaking of an awkward threesome... Issue 182 presents such a complicated web of narrative that I feel like needs to be like dissected for weeks. Rogue's slow descent into Carol Danvers' madness at the, I don't know, at the poor victimization of Michael Rossi. Can you imagine this woman being like, no, we dated! And him be like, no, I know you're kind of a terrorist. No, I'm your girlfriend! I nicknamed you! Touch me! It's just like Melrose Place. This is really very Melrose Placey. 
And I'm a huge Rogue fan. She has such a command of who she is. She's so desperate to prove to the X-Men that she's a good guy in this moment. She doesn't want to be the Rogue she was anymore. This is a changed point. And I think Claremont is using the fact that the Secret Wars is going to create this 12-issue delineation in the reading experience of anybody going back to say, hey, new Rogue. I think it's so funny that Rogue definitely strives to do the right thing here, despite her Carol Danvers episode, I guess we could refer to it as. Uh, but I, I still, I can't help but feel bad for Kitty because Kitty has had just such a poor go at things in the past few issues of Mutants. She was left out of the events of Secret Wars. And now Rogue is tasked with one job, which is go check on Kitty. And she immediately gets sidetracked. She gets to the manor and is just like, wait, hold on, what? Oh no, I gotta go. I, I have to go because I'm I'm in love with a person whose name I saw on this piece of paper. What I think in regards to movement of the plot that you were discussing in, in 181, for me as a as a just jumped on board reader, this was a grinding halt. It's really fascinating that you think it's a grinding halt, and I think maybe a little more context would help. Rogue's earlier appearances are trifling and hard to look at because in her first appearance she comes across as a junkie in her later appearances in dazzler she comes across as this closeted woman hater she she's very like it's like she's like the bad guy in a single white female remake but they forgot to tell her she's obsessed with the other person no i i you know i wouldn't i wouldn't disparage rogue this moment of character growth no i, I think for us you're right because there's a lot of character growth here it's but, but what i wanted to get to is there is a lot of character growth but it's this idea of every time we've seen rogue her character has been constantly changing and so now it's kind of coming all to like an immediate like surface of it being who is rogue who is she she literally has no idea who she is she literally has no idea who she's going to be but she knows what she wants to be but she doesn't know how to get there yet i respect that and i wasn't at all put off by the issue i thought it was a fascinating rogue story that i never read and that one that gave it more context to her backstory but for me we waited so long in Secret Wars to see the X-Men really come to their their full potential or utility and got nothing. 181 saw them in a fight and got nothing. I personally was hoping for a little bit more forward momentum regarding where we stand in the team. I would have liked to see a little bit more extrapolation on the dynamic between Storm and Charles that we glossed over in 181 and the way that he is undermining her authority and making her feel ineffective. To that, I want to say, I actually think you're pretty right and that this story maybe should have come later when new x-men have been introduced they tend to get an issue to themselves to show you who their characters are we saw it with kitty in john burns last issue where she saved christmas as well as saved the mansion from the giant alien by performing the plot of alien i like that you feel as though that was the mansion being saved they kind of blew it up but i guess it could have gone worse listen <laughs> so it's not what I think the problem is, Secret Wars kind of turn a little bit of stuff on its head where if this is somebody's jumping on point like Maddie did, you want more stories as the team as a whole and what does that dynamic mean as opposed to pretending like nothing happened and going forward with how you normally introduce characters, which is give them kind of a solo issue. I can definitely see that. I definitely understand why this issue needed to be. I understand its place in things. I just agree with with you agreeing with me that this is just an issue that's out of place the emma and sebastian appearance oh emma and sebi 
I got you covered. Oh, and the first X-Man. Oh, and the first X-Man, Tessa Sage. So when several million years ago, we covered New Mutants 1 through 3, there's a reference to Project Wide Awake in which Sebastian Shaw is looking to work with Senator Robert Kelly as well as Henry Peter Gyrick with the United States government to develop a series of Super Sentinels to take out the mutant menace threat. Now here we see Sebastian showing up in an arc that also reintroduces the idea that the government is going to go after mutants. I think Claremont was hoping to get to something a lot earlier than he did. So we're looking at Uncanny 183, but when the New Mutants were introduced, it was roughly Uncanny 167, and that was sort of like a regenesis point that never quite caught the giant size atmosphere. Here we have a reintroduction to the whole team, then a thorough introduction to Rogue, and a redefining of the nature of the relationships of all of the men and all of the women, although it did just occur to me for the first time. Colossus is rejecting Kitty. Lockheed rejected the Lady Dragon. Logan is forced to think how he's rejected by Mariko. Storm is considering rejecting the X-Men. Rogue Ro- feels rejected by the X-Men. Rogue is rejected by Rossi because she's not Carol. She is not Carol. She is not Carol. She is not Carol. And the only people who are shown to be truly emotionally thriving in romantic situations are kind of the bad guys. Like, Sebastian and Emma are very, oh, we're going to get it on later. Oh. In front of the children. Kind of sort of in front of the children. Yeah, there's a lot of deep V's in front of these kids. We do talk about how Emma's costume is a little non-appropriate for students, but I don't think she cares. I mean, hell, you, you know, every villain's taking their shot. Even uh, Juggernaut shoots his shot this issue. Which, Juggernaut's so hot, it just doesn't even make sense. He's just a bigger buffer arcade. Wow, so he's Carrot Top. Yes. Okay, Juggernaut is Carrot Top. Is Carrot Top still that huge? Uh, well, I mean, he was at one point. I mean, if you have that face. Yeah, I mean, you need to work. You gotta you gotta own it, because like, he always is going to look like a little kid with that face. So he had to get real somehow. This can't make it to air. No! Nope. Because Carrot Top listens every week. Carrot Top does listen. Friend of the pod, Carrot Top. Friend of the pod, Carrot Top. Friend of the pod, Carrot Top. Speaking of Carrot Top, uh, so <laughs> Skunk Streak over here. I think the moment that really helps me come together on Rogue realizing how severe the damage to her psyche is comes on roughly page 17 or 18, depending on how you're reading, when she says, I was so young back then, Michael. So innocent. I looked and acted tough, but I wasn't. Wait, I enlisted when I was 18, but I'm 18 now. How can that be? I mean, she says, um, but I was going to spare you. How how can I remember being with you, fighting by your side, loving you when I couldn't be more than, I'm sorry, more than a kid. Wow, she kind of talks like an old gunslinger. And she looks on her hand and can't find the scar. But there's something about that that's also sort of interesting, that she doesn't think that as Captain Marvel, the scar would have healed. So she seems to be aware of some parts of her Carol psyche, but there's parts of her Carol psyche missing. Because if she were Ms. Marvel, she'd have Ms. Marvel powers, and she'd know her hand would heal. So does Carol have a scar still? I gotta be honest, I really don't think every artist has drawn a scar on Carol's hand for the last 50 years. This is for shame. For shame, for every shame. artist. Well, she's wearing gloves a lot of the time. Because of the hand scar. Because of the hand scar. Because hands are tricky to draw. Oh, man. That's that's, that's deep. That's why you put a glove over it. And that's why you also cover one eye with, like, a woman's hair. It's usually long. So you don't have to draw the other eye. You just wipe that eye out. I do love how hard Claremont worked to give us a really great sense of where Rogue was in her personal journey along the lines of Avengers Annual Number 10. It's important to remember that Avengers Annual Number 10 marks Rogue's first 
first appearance and the major turning point in her character. While yes, she is evil for another year, I mean evil with like a, a quotation marks around it in a very sort of italicized way, she's not truly the heinous monster they make her out to be. And the confrontation of the hate on her face as she's trying to bachata with Carol on that one page, I guess, leaves me saying to myself, they want us to believe that she was a mean, angry woman. They want us to believe that she really was hateful. It's one of those things where they make up more time because Jonah, you read this all with me. How long was Rogue that monster? Technically in comic years, it was a while in that sort of timeline. In reality, it was only like six issues Part of that is because they didn't really want, they didn't really utilize Rogue and she was kind of a character kind of floating about for a while, but still she only had so many appearances and a couple of those were back to back and that happened over the span of like a day. Maddie, as somebody coming in, would you believe that this is referencing what is roughly three issues of material? I think it's made to seem like a much bigger deal than I think that it is, but no, no, I think three issues sounds about right. The moment that Kitty wasn't being looked for, I knew it was a rogue gone rogue. Um, so my biggest takeaway was was just the, the ending here. Nick Fury putting out an APB on Rogue, bring her in, she's so dangerous, you know, are we going to see that come to fruition? So we're heading toward a pretty unforgettable arc of Uncanny X-Men. 185 and 186 is well regarded as one of the high points of Storm's history. It's an arc known as Life Death. And Life Death is, for many people, a very, very pivotal point in the X-Men's history. Now, it kind of goes in line with what you guys are saying, with stuff feels a little bit out of order. Claremont was trying to do some really incredible things. I think if you told me that this whole thing was like a 60-page annual and everything was a little bit shorter, I would have liked it a little bit more. But we're taking a look at 183, which, don't get me wrong, the colors on 183, that saturated fuchsia sky with those purple notes and then the blue sadness of Ileana's soft comfort on Kitty. There's so much to this art that expresses what the story has to. You know, Claremont is like a 30-year-old man telling us what a 14-year-old girl feels about her first heartbreak. And that's that's a pretty hard thing to nail. I find myself blown away by the vulnerability of the female characters that Claremont is not just willing to, but comfortable expressing, whether it's Rogue over Rossi or Kitty over Colossus. We see a lot of alliteration and we see true, honest expressions of emotion. Jonah, you're not so far past where Kitty was in this point in her life. How did you feel about the expression of teen angst and heartbreak. We talk a lot about Colossus being emotionally stunted and that him not understanding how to either properly express himself through whatever situation that may be. Part of me wants to be like, they're so melodramatic and over it. But also part of me is like, well, maybe that's why it's so well written because she's 14. And clearly this would be the most devastating thing to ever happen to her because she's 14. Colossus, my pro I guess my, my problem with this issue is it feels like it's backtracking and backpedaling and having to make up for something that happened out of his control. What I find so weird is that this doesn't seem like Colossus. 
This doesn't seem like the 20-year-old dating and ruining a 14-year-old. That's that's not who this sounds like. I think he sees himself as the victim. I, I think he makes himself to be the victim. He mentally pleads for Colossus to stop speaking so much and so beautifully about Jassi. Colossus describes Jassi as as beautiful as the dawn, as gentle as a spring rain. Kitty goes on to say poetry from a man who said he never had the words to express what was in his heart and soul. I guess he found the words for her, never for me. And immediately I thought, wow, okay, you're being a little bit melodramatic, but you're definitely still the victim here. But no, he goes on for another two full pages. He goes on. Yeah, he can't seem to stop he himself. He can't seem to stop himself from bragging about the adult alien woman that he would have fucked if she didn't die to the 14-year-old mistress that he left at home. I mean, he just turned her into his concubine and now he's talking her through it. And like, I think, yeah, he just so totally makes himself the victim. She says, I'm sorry for your loss, Peter. She must have meant the world to you. And he literally says, as much as you did want, as much as you once did. Once. Oh my God. And he's like, I would give anything. I wish this didn't happen. I can't deny what I feel. This is very hard for me. There's no, there's no spin this all you'd like, but you are still the, the aggressor. I, like, I understand Kitty being so, emotionally invested in this even though it was revealed in New Mutants 15 to 17 that she does have feelings for Doug and him being in a closer age as Wolverine points out and being in similar circumstances of growing up as well as similar interests it makes it easier to fall in love with someone like that but Kitty's also young and when you're young I feel like you can kind of just love everybody and everything but Colossus as somebody who's older even though he's emotionally stunted so readily threw Kitty out like the courses of Secret Wars happened over a week he knew Saji for two days, but was in love with her. I, I, I don't have the words because I, I don't understand. Peter does. Right? And the thing that is, Kitty is portrayed as childish for being in love with someone she's known for so long and had so many near-death experiences with and has this established relationship and a close personal group of friends and what a silly girl for being so upset about her first heartbreak but this stud over here he fucked this one bitch this one time and now he gets to be heartbroken forever and nightcrawler rushing to colossus's aid to keep wolverine from taking a piece out of him trying to play referee as they go drink their peter at least tries to go drink his sorrows away Wolverine is setting a trap, and Nightcrawler is kind of condoning Peter's actions, definitely playing like the the soft mom. But if, if I could talk for a moment about uh, canon through the art here, um, credit to whomever do. Ileana has the most terrifying stuffed animals, as we discussed in the cover of New Mutants 15. What with the giant green Garfield and the and the fuzzy dildo with a face, and my favorite stuffed animal, Tom Selleck, and Tom Selleck, Tom Selleck, the stuffed animal on the wall. Um, so now <laughs> Kitty is consoling her with a t- half to life-size teddy bear with the face of a monkey um and that's that's just something for you to take with you something uh, something to carry with you in the in the darker times as tom Selleck watches on and these two women comfort each other so speaking of comfort and not getting much rogue and storm have this amazing exchange in the danger room where rogue is clearly going through some shit because she's not having the best week i don't know if you caught that and storm winds up going in and saving her and Storm tries to say, Rogue, do not bottle your emotions within you. I know the agony that I can bring. That really was Storm's arc for like three years. And seeing Rogue push away Storm, it has to make it so difficult 
for Storm because Storm was hesitant to accept Rogue in the first place. Now, Storm mentioning that the New Mutants go off with Xavier will come up, but I feel as much like that, I feel much like getting Xavier out of the way for this arc was just because there's too many adults running around to properly portray the childishness he's looking for. If Xavier was here and Storm was here, too many of the better angels would have to override Wolverine's demons, but enough of the adults are away that Logan can get Colossus's ass kicked. And play. But I think this is kind of really necessary for Colossus right now. Colossus needs a lot of tough love to be like, bro, you kind of fucked up. You don't have to love Kitty anymore. That's not what we're saying. The way you expressed yourself was so bad, you emotionally destroyed a 14-year-old girl. And this is a really fantastic Wolverine issue for anybody who loves a consistent characterization of Wolverine. This is very much in line with the Wolverine that I'm seeing in the current books here. The exchange between Nightcrawler when he says he's just a boy. And Wolverine replies then he deserves a spanking. But if he's a man though, it's time he faced the consequences of his actions. Either way, I'm taking a piece out. And I can't help but agree. You know, Wolverine is such an aggressive baby for his first couple of issues, and then he adopts this very aggressive avuncular role. I was going to say, you hit you hit it on the nose last last episode with avuncular father slash, uh, like, uncle brother figure. Yeah, uncle brother who lets you play with the nunchucks. And he's a good guy, but he comes from a very old school world. You know, nowadays he would probably make comments about how he had a lot of growing up to do with this whole Me Too movement, but he's there so he can support the women in his life. He definitely, um, the juggernaut is not someone to fuck with. And I think this whole gambit was... Wait, where's Gambit? He's not in this issue. He's busy leading the Morlocks, to, um, leading people to a massacre. There's two of us today. There's two of you today, yes. And... So Gambit has not yet led the Morlocks to the massacre. I think he's currently hanging around in New Orleans. He's hanging around Belladonna trying to get in her Donna Bells. Her Donna Bell bottoms. Speaking of getting around, I just want to say, and hey, spoiler, Celine's coming. So she appears through a lot of the of the Wolverine Colossus Nightcrawler plot. She is clearly making moves, and then when the fight breaks out between Juggernaut and Colossus, she moves on to the bar owner. And it's something that definitely caught my eye, you know, not not knowing anything of what's coming, not having read any of this before. Something that immediately stood out to me was the the fluidity of her transition through the background of that scene. I thought that was pretty great so i don't know if you've read the new mutants arc at them with nova roma but celine was there and celine's a bitch uh but she's a great bitch we love celine hashtag stan celine best bitch but it's one of those things that if you didn't read those, I knew it was Celine. But for someone who hasn't read New Mutants, it'd be very interesting to be like, who's this bitch? Why is she sucking people dry? But if you do know, you're like, <gasps> gasp. You know, Celine represents a major shift in the X-Men as well. The X-Men's villains up through now have been very Magneto. But here, they're going to get a little bit more sorceress. And this idea of draining the life force out of people. It's almost like when he decided to make Rose a good guy he wanted another way to do it so he picked another villain to create in her stead now Celine's magic makes her such an odd commodity I know that Logan hasn't fought Celine yet but I 
have some personal opinions about Logan being able to smell evil. I know it sounds really stupid, but I feel like Logan can smell when a person's got bad vibes. And Logan not catching Celine is really okay with me here because her magic makes her so unique in the Marvel Universe. She's like the proto-apocalypse as A. Magic and mutant a part of her cutant along with the secret of gummy berry juice. So the other thing that this issue is really significant for is it kicks off a series of introductions that are going to change the X-Men forever. We have Val Cooper and Raven Darkholm interacting. Now, you know, sharp-eared listeners will recognize Raven Darkholm as the alter ego of none other than Rogue's mommy dearest, Mystique. Now these characters are on their way to meet a gentleman by the name of Forge. I love Forge. I'm obsessed with Forge. Everybody has probably gotten tired of hearing me talk about Forge on this show, but at least he's finally here here now. There's so much to unpack with Val Cooper and Raven and Forge and even the upcoming debut of a very specific hound of future past. You know, Maddie, this was your first adventure with the X-Men proper with us, and I can't help but notice how this was meant to be someone's first adventure. This was meant to be the three issues you jumped on with. Everything is designed for it. Everyone is introduced, and every backstory is explained. You know, I I definitely feel like there's something coming. I I feel like, despite the issues with pacing, that there's definitely an event on the horizon coming out of Secret Wars, and so much of my anticipation for the plot to move a little bit differently and a little bit more quickly you know, can only be summed up by excitement for what's to come. So, don't know that I would have chosen this as my jumping off point, but I am thankful that uh, that it was. Something that I'm thankful for this issue, and I'm glad you enjoyed it so much, Maddie, is Wolverine's precedent to protect the young X-Girls, because I know the next X-Girl that's going to be coming up, Wolverine has a very special, specific relationship with that I'm excited to get to. Here we see Daddy Logan pull out his claws, literally and figuratively, uh, to protect Kitty because he loves Kitty so much. And he's like, that's my girl. Nobody hurts my girl. Best uh, Logan line in the in the entire issue was, she's 14, Peter, but to save you, she agreed to marry Caliban and join the Morlocks. Just throws it in his face. If Caliban hadn't released her from that vow, she'd be there today. You never even said thank you. Yikes, bud. And it's that exact bond that I'm so glad you two brought up. There's a short exchange between Kitty and Storm in which Storm goes to check on Kitty. Storm having gone through her own thing for so long and she says, Kitty, it's time for dinner. Come on, eat. And Kitty's like, nah, I'm leaving. And Storm's like, say what? And Kitty's like, nah, Xavier signed off on it. Field trip. And Storm's like, all right, well, have fun. Well, Kitty's not just leaving the X-Men for six issues. She's departing Uncanny X-Men for six issues to be part of a miniseries called Kitty Pride and Wolverine. A six-issue adventure that is essentially the emotional and thematic sequel to the Frank Miller Wolverine Chris Claremont series that came several years earlier. Now, this is going to see work by none other than series favorite Sal Buscema. He's going to fill in for Miller, who was already at this point very in his 1986 world of Dark Knight Rises and doing his Ronin thing and back on Daredevil and doing Elektra. So... This is sort of a change for the X-Men. So, guys, until we come back next time, Maddie, where can everybody find you? Well, if you have nothing better to do and you like cats and you support my anti... Well, if you have nothing better to do, like cats and support my anti-establishment rhetoric, you can follow me on Instagram at at the basely covetous man. Hey, Jonah, where can everybody find you? You can find me online breaking up with my ex-girlfriend who's a dragon, sending her off to a different dimension because she's just crazy about me like that. On Twitter and Instagram at Peak Jonah. Nico, where can everybody find you? Hey, you can find me thinking about the fact that now I can't get the idea of Juggernaut as a roided out arcade out of my head. 
You can also find me all over this network on Mondays and Thursdays here on X's for Podcast and on Tuesdays on HTML as well as Fridays for the Summer. Don't forget to check me out over on Instagram and Twitter at Nico Action. That's N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N. Guys, until we come back, ladies and gentlemen, keep those Krakoan lights lit. Goodbye. Bye.